Okay. Hello. Hey, look at that. We don't have any feedback this morning, so no one knows that we're ready to go. If you, uh, if you could find yourselves a seat, that'd be really great. So we're going to get going with the second half of our service. The third is maybe more accurate, but I'm going to try and not run too long over time. Matt. All right, so again, if you missed me this morning, uh, a little bit earlier, my name is Brad, one of the pastors here at Connect. It's great to be with you this morning. We've been on a journey, which Inika told you a little bit about earlier, called Reimagining Church, where we've been sitting with and looking at the way in which we've been doing church for so many years, and just beginning to ask questions like, is this really what God intended when He birthed the church, when He created the church? Have we begun to do things because we've always done them and not because God told us to do them. And so we've been going back to the Scriptures and we've been interrogating what the Bible has to say about what the church is like. And so for the next two months or so, we're going to be continuing in that, but we're going to do it in a slightly different way to the way in which we've been doing it over the last couple of months. And uh, this, these next two months, we're going to be looking into the book of Acts and we're going to be taking snapshots out of the book of Acts and just seeing how the church operated in the book of Acts. And so we're going to do about 10 different uh, journeys into Acts and, uh, and having a look at how the early church began to, to do things, respond to things, interact with stuff that was going on, and how maybe their practice needs to inform ours. And uh, one of the things I find really interesting as you read through the book of Acts and you see what Luke is saying about the church, is there's often this description that the church grew and enjoyed the favor of God and of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. It's a description that happens consistently throughout the book of Acts, and I would love that to be a description of how Connect Musenberg is. I would love for us to be a church that is full of the favor of God, that has the favor of the people, and that God is constantly adding to us those who are being saved. So my hope is as we begin to look at the early church, we'll see some of the things that God was doing in them, that they were doing in obedience to God, and that we'll be able to say, hold on, maybe we need to, we need to shift ourselves a little bit, and we need to recognize, we need to come into alignment with some of the things that they were doing. And as we do that, it's not necessarily going to be chronological. We're not going to go from Acts 1 all the way through to Acts 28, because A, there are 28 chapters and we're going to get lost, and B, well, there are 26, I could be wrong. Anyway, um, also because there are ideas that overlap as you go through the book of Acts that happen again and again. So we're going to draw some of those ideas together and group them as we go along. Next week, just to let you know, in case you don't see me here, I haven't left you. I've just taken a weekend off, and so Glenn and I will be in Elgin, but Harry is going to be leading us next week, so we're excited to have Harry preaching and part of our leadership team, so just want to let you know that. And last week, I didn't abandon you. I went to the morning services in Medridge to share some of what God is doing here with them so that they don't you know, get deprived. All right, so let's pick up the story of where we're going to go this morning. We, um, the book of Acts starts with the the end of, of sort of Jesus' life. So it picks up after his resurrection. He's with his disciples. He spends kind of 40 days with them. And then he ascends back into heaven, which happens right in the beginning of the book of Acts. And he tells his disciples that they need to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come on them. Because as Inika said earlier, we can't do church and we can't be church 
without the filling of the Holy Spirit enabling us to do everything. So they off they go to Jerusalem, and while they're in Jerusalem, they realize, look, they're one apostle short because Judas you know, didn't really have his priorities straight, and uh, so they need a new one, so they elect Matthias, and uh, they do that through the enabling of the Spirit, and, they, and they're there, and they're probably there for about another week. And then one day, we have the day of Pentecost, right, which is the Jewish festival of weeks, all the Jews are in Jerusalem, they're celebrating, and, uh, and these disciples, there are about 120 of them, they're, they're praying together, they're gathered together in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit comes down in a way that is very distinctive, and that most of us probably haven't seen, where tongues of fire begin to appear over people's heads, and a whole group of people suddenly begin to speak in different tongues and different languages that they haven't before. But this, this moment, this marks almost, in a sense, the... The, the birth of a new age, it marks the birth of the church proper, where, where God's people are now filled with the Spirit. They're now living in the promise that Jesus, the Messiah, came to, to operate and to bring out. And so Peter begins to preach, and he preaches a sermon in Acts 2 that most of you know is quite a famous sermon. And, and he explains to people what's going on, why people are speaking in tongues, that actually this is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that happened in the Old Testament, and that actually this is all about Jesus. That's his message. And everyone's all like very happy with him until he said, and Jesus is the guy that you kind of crucified. And it's like, it gets quite personal and quite intense. But instead of them breaking away and running for it, they get convicted and they get cut to the heart. And they say, what do we need to do to be saved? And he says, repent and be baptized. And so they do that. And it says 3,000 people were added to the church in that, in that moment. That's fantastic. The church is kind of birthed now in this moment. And then the narrative breaks, and Luke provides us a bit of a summary of how that new early band of believers, that 3,000, began to live out their faith. And that's where we're going to land this morning, in Acts 2, from 42 to 47. And I've called my message this morning, The Pillars of the Church, because what Luke does in this first verse, in Acts 2:42, is he lists four things that the believers gave themselves to. And then he unpacks them in the next sort of five verses that follow. And, and as they live out these things, they, they become the church that we read about in the book of Acts. And so I want us to read that together, and I want us to see from that what God might want to do in us as a result of that. So let's have a look. Acts 2, 42 to 47. Some of you, this might be quite familiar. You might have heard this before, but I trust that God will, will say something to us as we look at it this morning. Says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together, and they held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as everyone, as anyone had a need. And every day they would they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day, here's the description, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now, I know this passage is, is quite familiar for some of us. In fact, I realized as I was preparing for it that I've actually, I preached on this three years ago. Right, so if anyone could tell me what I said three years ago, then I can sit down and be good. Uh, i tell you what, if you give me the name of the series, I'll consider doing it. Right? We're funny like that. We, we tend not to hold things for too long. Right? Bill Hybels, before he fell from grace, used to say, vision leaks. 
right? Vision leaks, and if you don't constantly reinforce it, we lose it. And so my, my hope as we engage in these scriptures this morning is that God will show us something that maybe has leaked a little bit out of us, that maybe we need to, to tweak in us, that we need to give additional attention to and, and actually change how we live and practice because of what we find in the scriptures. So, so here we go. We've got the foundation, the New Testament church. I think there's some very significant things. So let's, let's unpack them a little bit together, and we'll go from there. There's, there's, we're going to look at those four pillars, but we're also going to notice two other things about them um, that, that kind of precede them and, and overarch this idea. And the first one is this, that, that Luke uses this word devoted twice, or the Greek word proskateron. Right? Tommy, you got that for us? Right. This occurs twice in this description. It occurs in verse 42, describing how they participated in these four pillar activities. And it occurs again in verse 46, about how they went to temple and went to one another's homes. And as you can see, what this word means, when we say devoted, what it means is to continue to do something with intense effort, despite the fact that it's possibly going to be difficult. Right? How many of you have ever found being part of the church difficult? Right? It's full of people. Sorry. <laughs> we all carry our issues. Right? Church, people have often said church would be so easy if it, didn't, if it wasn't for all the people. Unfortunately, sometimes we, we need to persevere through difficulty. And you're going to see some of the difficulties that they encountered. We're going to encounter some similar difficulties. I think this word is really, really significant. I don't think we speak a lot about being devoted today. Like. I was struggling to think of like a good contemporary example of someone being devoted to something. And I thought maybe, maybe the Barmy Army is a reasonably good description. And if any of you know, who knows what the Barmy Army is? All right, we've got one or two sportsmen in the crowd. But the Barmy Army is a group of drunken Englishmen that follow their English team everywhere they go. Right? No matter where England are playing on tour, the Barmy Army is there. They have bought tickets, they've got merch, they've got flags, they're dressed in English flags, and they're there, and they are cheering loudly and boisterously at every single game. And they probably roll home afterwards and try, hope the Uber driver makes it to their hotel. In the, <laughs> in the spirits, I think it's maybe more accurate. Right? They're not a great example of how we should live our lives, but they are committed to the English cricket team. No matter where that team goes, these people will follow them. I think this idea of devotion is maybe, it's, it's a bit weird for, for many millennials, a group of which, you know, as much as I would like to be, apart from that, I, I'm included in that. The idea of continuing to do something with intense effort, despite it being potentially challenging, is quite unusual as a descriptor of our generation. That's not usually how we're described, unfortunately. Right? I mean, if you, you can look at at physical exercise. Most people, when you, when you want to get fit and you start the new year, you're like, I'm, I'm going to work out this year. It's going to be great. And then you're oh, it's just really hot. I don't know. It's, like, it's not a great day for the gym today. Or I don't really want to go for Or it's cold and it's raining. And, you know, it's, or my friend bailed on me, so I'm not really going to do it. Or you know what? Like, I'm actually, it's just been a rough day and I just need to go home and have a glass of wine on the couch. Right. We don't really persevere and it's often difficult for us to persevere, to do something with intense efforts, even if it's difficult. But I think if, this, if the idea of being devoted is, is a little foreign to our culture in general, it's maybe even a little foreign to our culture in the church. And there are exceptions, 
I have seen people who are committed and devoted to the nth degree, and that's a blessing. But I think sometimes, you know, our, our average church attendance in the Western church has been dropping for years. Here in Connect, the most of you will attend our, our core kind of group once every third week, plus minus. That's, so many of you are exceptions to that, and we bless you. But our average is one in three. Right? Our attendance is, is dropping. It's part of how, how things are changing. Right? There's a bit more to that, and we, let's not get stuck on that. But I'd love, you, I'd love you to consider this. As we look at these four different pillars, what, is it, what does it look like for us to do these things with intense efforts? even if it's going to be difficult. Luke says that the church was devoted to these things. They pursued them with an intensity of effort, even though it was difficult. What is that going to look like for us? That's the first thing that really I think we need to just hold as we begin to look at these things. The second thing is this. Something I noticed as I was studying this this passage is that everything that the early church devoted themselves to was a group activity. Everything was a, it was a group activity. And we in the West, we like to individualize our lives quite nicely. Right? We're really quite good at that and thinking about everything in terms of me and how it affects me. But the early church devoted themselves to doing things together. When the apostles taught, they taught in a group setting. They taught at the temple and there were a whole bunch of people there or they would go into people's homes. Right, so you see Acts chapter 3, for instance, you see them, they go to the temple and they, they see a man who's born lame, they heal him, then they begin to teach to everyone who's there at the temple. In Acts chapter 5, verse 42, we read this and it says, Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus was the Christ. It was something that they did together with a group of people. Either there was a group of people gathered at the temple or there'd be a smaller group that'd be gathered in someone's home and the apostles would come and they would teach. Fellowship is by definition a group activity. Right? You can't have fellowship by yourself. It's not a real thing. Right? You can have a good time with the Lord, but it's not fellowship. Right? Fellowship is a group activity. The breaking of bread is really, it's about a social gathering around food. We'll dig into it a little bit more later, right? And, and the prayers, the one thing that maybe could be a bit individualistic, actually the reason that it's introduced by the definite article and has a, a plural to it is because it's referring to the prayers that would happen at the temple. There were formal times of prayer that Jewish believers would go to and observe. And Luke is saying that the new church devoted themselves to going to be there to pray together in a corporate setting. He's, we also notice, and you'll see this as well if you continue to look in Acts, and we'll do this a bit as we go through the next two months, you'll notice the believers also gathered together and they prayed in homes as well. There's two great stories in Acts 4 and in Acts 12, both of which are like persecution stories. In Acts 4, Peter and John have been arrested because they were you know, so bold as to tell people about Jesus after Jesus healed someone, then they got arrested for that. Then in Acts 12, Peter's been arrested again because, again, he's telling people about Jesus, which is really inconvenient if you're a Jew. And uh, so they've been arrested. And at both points, we see pictures of the church who are gathered in their home to be praying for the apostles at that particular time. But it's always together. It's always together. And all of the things that, yeah. One of the things I've noticed and maybe you've noticed this as well, but it's about how we live our lives. It's that who we spend our time with shapes the priorities that we engage in in our life. Have you noticed that? 
Right? So I think the early church spent so much time together. It's no wonder that the priorities of God and the kingdom were constantly before them because they didn't allow themselves to fill their time with stuff that wasn't about God. They gave themselves over to the people of God so that when they're together, you're naturally talking about what God is doing because that's what we're doing when we're getting together with believers. And so they're constantly as a church moving forward in the things of God. I want you to think about how, what, if you, you go to work, many of you go to work, right? Imagine you went to work and you got to start each day in the office and there was a group of you that in your office, maybe 5% of your office who were Christians. And you got together and each morning you prayed for half an hour and you prayed for your office and you prayed for opportunities. What would your day look like if that was how you started each day in a secular environment? And if that group fell away because, you know, the the four other people got fired and you were sad or they left for better opportunities and you didn't have that space anymore, how much more difficult would it be to be trusting God to be at work in that work environment without brothers and sisters to come around you and to share a corporate vision. There's something significant about gathering together to share in the priorities of the kingdom. So those are, those are two things. Let's now begin. Let's look at, at the four pillars that those things were applied to, right? That Luke talks about how they were devoting themselves to these things. And the first one is this. It's the apostles' teaching Right? And we saw that the apostles, they would go to the temple, they would go to the homes of believers, they would teach the people, they would proclaim that Jesus was the Messiah. And the early church devoted themselves to these men. They chose to sit under them, these guys who had been with Jesus, so that they could learn from them, that they could, they could catch their passion, their zeal, their boldness, their lifestyle, something of what they were doing. And why did they devote themselves to this thing? Why is it so important that they sat under teaching. It wasn't that they studied the scriptures for themselves. It was that they sat under, under teaching. There are other places in Acts where we see the church affirmed for studying the scriptures, and that's also very important. But the early church is described as sitting under the teaching of the apostles. I want to suggest there may be maybe three ideas, because you know, it's not clear for us in the scriptures. We're just told it's what they did. The first one is, I think, the church recognized that the Word of God has inherent power in it. Where God's Word is rightly preached or taught, it has power to change someone's life, to, to change a circumstance, to change a reality. Isaiah in the Old Testament, in chapter 55, 11, God says, The Word that proceeds from my mouth will not return to me empty but it will accomplish what I please. It will prosper where I send it. That's God speaking about His Word. Jesus, in in the Gospels, He he shares the parable of the sower, which I had the the privilege of preaching last week in Menorage. And what He says, amongst many other things, He says that the Word of God, when it lands in your life, when it is properly cultivated, it bears supernatural fruit. It makes you the disciple that God has intended you to be. God created you to be a disciple that bears fruit. And when the Word of God lands in you and you tend it, you cultivate it, you care for it, you obey it, then you become the disciple that God has made you to be. And the fruit that you bear is exponentially above and beyond what you could try and do by yourself. Paul, later on writing to the Romans, 
Right? He starts the, the book to the Romans, and he says to them in Romans 1.16, he says, guys, the gospel, which is the story about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Right? It's a story. So Jesus is no longer on earth at this point. Paul is writing, he says, this story has power. It is the power of God to bring people to salvation. It's just the story about Jesus, but it has power. God has anointed it with power. Hebrews 4.12 says, the writer, he says, the, the word of God is alive and it is active. It is sharper than any sword you could have. It pierces between the division between soul and spirit, between joints and marrow, and it is able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's the word of God. God's word has power in and of itself. And where we hear it and we cultivate it in obedience, it transforms the Christian from one degree of glory into another. I think the early church began to recognize that the apostles were teaching and expounding the word of God and that it had power. I think the other thing they recognized is that the apostles demonstrated the power and the anointing of the word in the way in which they lived their lives. The book of Acts is filled with stories like these. I'll give you just a couple. We read earlier, 2.43, that everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs that were being performed by the apostles. Acts 3.10, the very next chapter, talks about how Peter heals a man who was born lame. And if you think about someone born lame, not only are they not able to walk, but their legs don't work. They have no muscle mass in their legs. They've never learned to walk. You know, babies, they start crawling and then their mom or dad holds them by the hands and they kind of waddle around. Right? There's a learning process to how does walking work, which you've never learned if you're born lame. Peter heals this guy and he begins to walk immediately. It's, it's miraculous. Acts 4.33, with great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection. Acts 5.12, the apostles perform many signs and wonders among the people. Right. Other points in Acts, we've got Peter, Peter, people are bringing out sick people so that Peter's shadow would touch them because they're getting healed just as a shadow touches them. God has touched these men and there's a recognition that the power and the anointing of God is resting on these men. So the church has said, we're going to sit under you. We want to receive from you. And so that leads me to the third thing. I think they recognized and they joyfully submitted to the leadership of the apostles. They could see God had called these men to lead the church. And if they, for those that didn't believe them, there was, you know, the story in Acts 5, which we're going to look at a little bit later um, in the series, of Ananias and Sapphira who tried to deceive the apostles. And just in case you doubted the authority that they operated in while they died, it was rough. And it says, and great fear came over the whole church. Right, there, was, there was a recognition. And I, I want to share a story with you from Bruce Collins. Some of you who... Um, went to the Immerse Conference a couple of years ago, might have met Bruce. Uh, he's a Welsh minister, ministers in the New Wine Movement in Wales, and, uh, and he tells the story about how God had to teach him submission. And so he's beginning to push into the, the things of the Spirit, the life of the Spirit, which we've spoken a bit about this morning. And the movement that he's a part of, the Anglican movement, is, is not big on that in, in Wales where he's a part of. It's very traditional, very conservative. We don't do prophetic words in the service. We don't do words of knowledge. That stuff is out there, right? And so, so he feels God moving this thing in him, and he's trying to press into this. And it's not really like it's not birthing in him yet. And 
He gets called away because he's a um, he's a a young young minister in the Anglican Church. He gets called away to this this kind of retreat that they're now going to have as the Anglican ministers of this particular parish, and the the one bishop is there, and he. He kind of begrudgingly goes to this thing because he recognizes that God is leading him into a new thing, into the life of the Spirit. And what am I ever supposed to receive from a movement of people that has lost that, that, that doesn't know how God has called them and anointed them? And, and I can relate to his story because, to be very honest, being a part of the Baptist Union in South Africa is a little bit like that, right? We, we're very good at bureaucracy and, and not really like following the heart of God, seeing the power of the spirits. And as a church, we're, trying, we're pressing into them. That's where the immersed network is. Right? Anyway, so Bruce is in this space, and he's gone, to this, he's gone to this meeting, and it's a couple of day retreat, and they're taking some time to, to fast and to pray during the retreat. And then they get, the bishop tells them, or, or the facilitator tells them, look, what we want you to do is a kind of culmination to this thing before we break our fast is that uh, I want you to each come up to the bishop and he's going to place his hands on you and say a blessing over you. And Bruce tells us, he's like, guys, I don't want to do that. Like, who is this man to bless me? Like, I, 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 like, why, why? Like, he's not even carrying any of the anointing that I'm trusting God for, the places I'm, I'm wanting to go. Anyway, he feels God say to him as he's praying, Bruce, you need to go up there and you need to be obedient. You need to bring yourself in submission to this bishop. And so off he goes, and uh, he makes his way up there. And as the bishop touches him and begins to bless him, he collapses onto the floor, and he's a blubbering mess. And the Spirit of God just comes and pours himself into him, and he's blown away. And he's like, what is happening? Because the thing that I desire to move in, that this guy knows nothing about, like genuinely deep conservative, not interested, but God poured out the Spirit in him because he chose to place himself in submission to his leadership. It's a weird story, right? It's a true story. I heard it from him himself. I think the people had learned that as they sat in submission to the leaders that God had put under them, that there was a blessing that flowed out of that. We no longer have the apostles. We still have the Word of God. And we still have leaders and teachers that are called to lead us in those things. What does it look like for us today to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? I don't want to tell you what that is. I'd love you to just hold that before the Lord. Say, God, what does it look like for me to devote myself myself to the apostles' teaching? What's that going to look like in my life? Okay, we're running out of time. I'm already late. Okay. Second thing that they devoted themselves to was, was the fellowship. It's this idea of, of being together. I want to say this. I want to do this this morning, and, and maybe we're going to miss out. We're going to um, quicken up the last two. But this one, I think, is really, really significant. What does it mean when it says the church devoted themselves to the fellowship? It's, again, it comes from a Greek word, koinonia, which means to have a share in something. I want to say this to you. I want to say I believe what Luke is trying to say is the fellowship The thing that the people had a share in was that the gospel gave them a share in the family of God. They became joined to a family. There are a couple of places in Scripture where this is seen clearly. Jesus speaks in Mark chapter 3. It's a story about him and he's gathered together 
and he's doing some ministry, and it says his mothers and his brothers, they came, and standing outside, they sent to him, and they called to him, and a crowd was sitting with him, and they said to him, Jesus, you need to recognize your mother and your brothers, they're outside, and they're looking for you. And his answer is really interesting. He said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus said the way in which family is understood is changing in the kingdom. Yes, we love our families, but there is a family of God. Those who live out and follow the will of God, that is the family of God. God creates a new family. That's why Paul writes in his gospel to the Galatians and as well to the Romans. And he tells them, he tells them about this adoption that they've received. He says, you're no longer a slave to sin and to the law. You're no longer under that. God doesn't treat you like a servant anymore, but he treats you as a son or a daughter because you have been adopted into the kingdom of God and into the family of God. And he's put his spirit in you so that you can cry out and call him dad, Abba Father. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And you're not just a son You're an heir, Paul says. The good news about Jesus creates a family. It creates the family of God, those who live out and do the will of the king. And the church recognizes, and they began to devote themselves to this, so much so that when they were together, it says they held all things in common. Remember we read that? That they sold their stuff to help one another when people were battling. Because they recognize, and this was really interesting for me because this is written just after the day of Pentecost, right? So you had 120 people who were the original kind of group of disciples, and they probably knew each other reasonably well. They'd been getting together as Jesus began to do his ministry, and slowly the group has grown, and and they're they're spending weeks and, and maybe like a couple of weeks together praying as they're waiting. They're there for the 40 days Jesus is there. Right? They've got to know each other reasonably well. But then in a moment, 3,000 people are added to the church. And, now, and it says that they, these people began to sell the stuff that they have to help one another out. That's quite weird because you don't have the opportunity to vet people. You know, to be like, yeah, I know that you, need, you say you need this, but I don't know, really know you yet. I don't really trust you maybe yet. Right? Isn't that a real thing? that we wrestle with. And yet, it says these people were giving and selling what they had to make sure that they were able to provide for what everyone needed in the community. It was a deep, deep devotion and love that they gave to one another. Acts 2.46 says, daily they got together, either in the temple or in each other's homes. They were devoted to being there. What does it look like for us to devote ourselves to the family of God? I want to say to you, if you think the answer to that is getting together for an hour and a half on a Sunday, we're going to be a very boring family. There's going to be a lot of deficiency in your idea of what the family of God is. Because the reality, you're just not going to get to know people that well. You're not going to get to know their intimate heart and struggles. But, but being family is about spending time together. It's about being committed to being together. Family happens in close quarters. Yeah, it it happens more broadly here. This is like a big kind of, you know, extended family gathering where all the the cousins and aunts and uncles, they all get together, right? Reg, the colored brothers and sisters are great at this, 
right? Huge family gatherings. Everyone comes together and everyone brings food and there's a feast and it's fantastic. I come from a very small family. Like the, I have one cousin who lives in Cape Town. Everyone else is somewhere else. Right? That's a foreign idea for me. But, but this is what the church began to recognize. It was about being together, coming together. And it can't happen. It can't happen in an hour and a half on a Sunday. It's just never going to work. Right? There are about 80 of you here this morning, maybe 90. How many people are you going to have real conversations with in an hour and a half? Four? Five? Depending on how extroverted you are, right? But when you get together in small spaces, when you spend time with one another, doing things together, ministering together, that's where the family gets built. It's why we have what we call life groups. Right? And the church has done life groups, small groups, for a long time. But this is a much better space. And I would love to begin to see our church categorized more by who are a part of small family groups than who gathers together with us on Sunday. It's great that we're so glad that you're here. But if you really want to be a part of the family of God, you've got to find a small group to be a part of. You've got to find a bunch of people that you can journey with, who know your heart, who are praying for you because they know that when you go to work on Monday, you're having a serious discussion with your boss. Or you're going there and you know you, there's, a, there's a client that you're meeting, but you're trusting not just to sell him the product that you have, but that you need to tell him about Jesus because God has told you to do that. You need someone who's going to be praying for you because actually right now you don't have money for your rent. And you need guys to be gathered around you and supporting you in that. For people that know you and love you that say, you know what, if it's not working out, I've got a room. You can come and stay with me. That kind of thing doesn't happen when there are a hundred of us gathered together. It happens when we're small and close. So I'd like, to, I'd like to pause for a moment and invite our life group leaders to come up to the front here so that you can see them, right? And they can tell you when they meet. And then I'd love you to, to, to just come in. Yeah, we, we're probably um, going to close there because it's already quarter past 11. And the other stuff is also good. But life group leaders, won't you guys come up and stand down? I've asked Reg to stand proxy for Mark and Joanne's life group because some of you may not know this, and this is a place where we can mourn together. But um, Mark, Joanne's mom passed away this week. And so that's been a really sad thing. It's been a really difficult thing for them. If you know them, I'd love you to send them a message. Let them know that you love them and care for them. Um, but Reg is going to stand proxy for them. Inika, you don't want to... Come on. So this is our wonderful group of people that lead life groups in and around this area. Um, guys, why don't you just grab a mic... Introduce yourself, tell people a little bit about your group, and, uh, and we're going we're gonna to close after that. John and, John and Shirley, um, our group meets on a Tuesday at half past seven in, in actual fact, Musenberg, so it's not far away from here. I also have a ladies' life group that meets on a Monday afternoon at our home, if anybody's looking for a ladies' life group. There's another one on a Wednesday at Meadow Ridge as well in a, in, on Wednesday morning. So if anyone's keen to do that as well. I'm Tom. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we meet, we are now meeting on a Wednesday. Um, we live in Clavelli, so we're on the other side of, of, of Musenberg. No, it's not. It's only going to be this far.
Ineke. I have Irene's favorite. Yeah. Um, I'm Ineke. I have a group together with Angela and with uh, Sharon. It's called Wisdom Nights. We meet uh, every other week on a Monday evening. It's only for women, so I'm sorry about you guys. Uh, it's <laughs> not that we don't like you, um, but this is for women. <coughs> We've just been going through a whole series on what it means for the church to look um, to be a family and what it looks like in our life group. I'm um, not quite sure what the next topic is going to be like, but if you feel like the Spirit is stirring you to, um, to come and join, um, just come and have a chat with me and uh, we can take it from there. As Brad had mentioned, I'm standing in for Mark and <coughs> Joanne. Uh, our group meets on a Wednesday. <coughs> And we are situated just near the uh, river, uh, the lake there, um, Sunflay. There's some very interesting uh, aspects to this group we have. We have a little mascot. It's called Ruby. She's a rabbit. <laughs> and she loves the word. You put your Bible down on the ground and you start chewing on it. <laughs> uh, Another person we have is a, is a Catholic lady who's been coming to our group for many years. And uh, the group is open to all, so um, there must be something about our group that this lady has been keep coming. She's a Bible-believing Catholic, and we just praise the Lord for her, and uh, she's just a great lady. And then we have a crazy old 80-year-old man in our group. You're never too old to belong to a group. And this guy, he believes in, uh, he thinks he's 40s into surfing and all that. And uh, he takes a cold shower every morning, even if it's winter. So really, uh, we have a really interesting group. We're only about four or five people, but the Lord says we're two or three are gathered, they are there in, in the midst, is it? Right, thank you. Thank you, guys. So, uh, in addition, we'll just stay here for a moment. Uh, in addition, um, I co-lead a group with uh, Kevin and Cara. You might know them as our other worship leaders. And we meet in Kirstenhof, but we create lifts to and from Musenberg. So, if you're in Musenberg, you want to come and join us. We're a little bit younger, on average. Um, <laughs> you, I mean, you guys all look about 35-ish, you know, but we're about 33. But... Uh, we meet in, uh, in Kirstenhof, we meet every week on a Thursday from 7 to 9.30 and we bring our suppers with us so we eat together and, uh, and we make sure that we pray together we, yeah, and we allow God to move us to, to walk out and live out our faith in obedience. So that's kind of a little bit about our life groups. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close now and I'm not going to pray, we're just going to, we're going to land and I'd love you, if you feel like you need to be a part of a group and you're not yet in a group, here are the people, right? Just chat to them. They're just lovely people. You can just say, hey, I would really like to be a part of a group. I think it would be a real wonderful thing. And it will begin to help us build real family. So since we're going to land, I had other things to say. And there were other things that are also important. Go and study the scriptures for yourself and allow God to say it to you. But uh, we're, going to, we're going to close here. I would love for us to be a church that is described as a real family where we know one another, we love one another, we support one another, we, are, we know what's going on, and we can hold one another in our hearts as we do life together. So, so that's where we're at. Thank you for being with us. Grab the last tea and coffee because we don't want to throw it away. Chat to some people, buy some more cake, 
and uh, we'll see you again on Tuesday because we're getting together to pray corporately, and that's important. Thanks so much, guys.